So I, what I want to do today is um, offer you, I think, hopefully, an insightful understanding of one of the great parables of Jesus. And I think especially during this Lenten season, it's particularly appropriate and important because it really, as, as the scholars call it, it's the gospel within the gospel. And it comes from Luke's gospel, obviously. Um, and the story is really one of the most, if there was any question that Jesus was uh, an extraordinary storyteller, perhaps I would say one of the great storytellers of all history. I mean, we put him right up there with Shakespeare and whoever else. Um, because little, little parables like this are so beautifully constructed and they have such complicated uh, and profound levels of meaning that you could never exhaust them, certainly not in a half day like today. Um, so they're, they're powerful stories that if we go into them really have the, the uh, power to, to change us and to draw us into the mystery of God in a way that sometimes we didn't expect. And the big question, I guess, always is, you know, for all time, is if there is a God, what is he like? You know, um, and we, we believe in God, so we don't, the first part of that question we don't have to worry about. But the what is God like part is really yet always for us, even as believers, uh, a really important question is what is God really like? What, do, what, what kind of God are we talking? What manner of divinity are we dealing with here? And we've all grown up or had experiences with different images of God. Some of them more healthy than others. Some, um, some very, very childish or sometimes childlike. Others uh, more mature, depending on what stage of life we're in. Uh, which ones mean the most to us? Which ones draw us in? Which ones attract us? Which ones repel us? Um, the little image we had of God from our childhood of the sort of the Sistine Chapel God, this great old man with the white beard, you know, um, sort of sitting on his cloud, you know, with his hand extended, <laughs> powerful, or, or the kingly God sitting on a throne with a crown on his head and an orb in one hand and a staff in the other. And those kinds of images um, maybe were helpful at certain times in our lives, but they maybe sometimes leave us longing for something deeper. Um, and uh, that's where Jesus' parables in particular really can be helpful in giving us a new understanding, a new relationship really with the God who created us and who has been so gracious to us through um, the centuries and through our own lives. So what is God like? Um, that's what Jesus wants to do with his life, is to help us know what God is like. Um, to, to know God as he knows God. And he does that through his deeds, healing people, forgiving people. But he also does it through these extraordinary stories that he tells, that he, he, he creates. Um, sometimes using bits and pieces from his Jewish tradition, um, and then working them and amplifying them, turning in, them into a wonderful and great story. So the one that we want to deal with today, especially because it's the Lenten season and it's very appropriate for the Lenten season, and it's a kind of preliminary to Jesus' own passion and death and resurrection, are found in 
uh, Luke 15, so the 15th chapter, and I, 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 didn't, I presumed being good Catholics you wouldn't come equipped with Bibles. <laughs> um, so I did print out for you the text of the story, but before we get to that, before we read the story, I just want to say a little bit about this particular chapter, this particular little parable. Um, it's really three stories in one, and it's, uh, it, Jesus, Jesus calls it one parable. He refers to it as a parable, or, or Luke does. Uh, Jesus told them a parable. Um, but it's really three stories kind of contained in one. And the, the, the situation Jesus finds himself in is this, this is late in his, his public ministry. He's already well on his way to Jerusalem. He's turned his face towards Jerusalem. He knows that it's not going to go well there for him. And, um, and he, the ongoing debate, crisis, uh, conflict uh, that he has with the leaders of the, the Jewish people, the Pharisees in particular, and the, you know, those characters that we're always encountering in the Gospels, has kind of reached fever pitch. I mean, the, 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 the tension between them is really, really high at this point. And that's the context Jesus uh, uses, uh, that's the, that we find Jesus in as he, he begins to tell these stories. And the particular occasion of this is that um, they have been accusing him of the unimaginable sin of eating dinner with sinners. Um, and to understand why that was such an important point for these Pharisees and these other people is that in the Jewish culture, in that Middle Eastern culture, um, which still exists today to a large degree, if, 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 you, if, if you were blessed enough to be able to enter into a small Mideastern uh, Mideastern village where life is much as it was 2,000 years ago, that um, would be the same today. So it's one thing to visit with someone and chat with someone, but, and, and that's, you know, that's one thing in their culture. You, you know, you'd, have a cup of coffee or something, it's a little very intense, deep, rich coffee on a, or a tea or something. But to invite someone into your home, or to be invited into somebody's home, and to lay down at table with them, weren't sitting, they didn't have chairs, they kind of laid then, laid on an arm, and to share a meal together, that was something altogether different. That was, that was to establish a deep personal relationship, friendship, really even love, brotherly love, sisterly love, well, brotherly love mostly in, this, in, the, in those times, relationship with that person. That was to all that, to, to become, um, I guess just to become brothers with someone, um, was to eat with them. And so when the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of, of uh, eating with sinners, tax collectors, and those kinds of people, um, they're saying, you know, you're you're making friends with the worst of the worst. You know, um, you're you're not just hanging around with sinners. Uh, you are making sinners your best friends, your your deepest friends, and that's not right because these are really bad people. And they contaminate us, and, and, and they're sinful, and they're sin, they're not of God, they're irreligious, they're, they're heretics, they're, um, they're traitors. Uh, tax collectors in particular were considered traitors um, because they colluded with the Romans and were also crooks and thieves in terms of what they took from the people. 
So that's, the, the, that's, that's the, what sets Jesus off. And he starts telling these, these stories to explain himself and also to try and let these accusers see what he's up to and try and invite them in to what it is that he's doing with these people. Does that make sense? So it's just a little bit of background. So he begins by telling um, a parable, which is really three parables, each one building on the other. So the first one is the parable of the shepherd who goes looking for the one sheep and leaving the 99 behind. Um, and the shepherd obviously is the image of God or deeper, the image of Jesus himself. Um, going out, the, the sheep does nothing. The lost sheep does not come back to the father. He doesn't find his way back. He doesn't have a conversion experience and say, oh my God, I better get back to the other 99. Um, it's just lost. So the shepherd has to go out and find the sheep at great cost. It's hard to find a sheep in the desert. <laughs> they hide, you know, who knows where he would go? Spend a day or two looking for this lost sheep. And then once you find him, uh, if you find him alive, you've got to go through the very hard work of carrying the sheep, which is heavy, back to the fold or back to town to show that um, he's been found and that you didn't steal him or sell him to somebody else. And if you can't find him, then you're expected to bring back the skin or the bones to show that you didn't sell him and you're not cheating your master. Shepherds worked for other people. They were also lowly people, people of the field, looked down upon by everyone else. So then you have the story. So, so the shepherd goes and finds him. Um, God goes out to find the lost sheep. And then God goes to the hard work of getting the sheep back to the fold. The second story is the lost coin. A uh, woman of the house has 10 coins. She's got them tied up in a little rag, um, probably. And those are precious. Each coin is a day's work of labor. Um, and she loses one in her dark houses in the time of Jesus in the Galilee area are built of black, heavy granite stones. They have very little natural light. It's very easy. You drop something on the floor. It's very hard to find it. You've got to get a lamp and go look for it. It could fall between the cracks. Uh, archaeologists to this day find coins underneath the stones of domestic houses because people will lose them. And, you know, you, it's like we lose stuff in our houses and we can't find it. <laughs> Where did I put that key anyway? Um, uh, and so she eventually finds the coin and has this great party. And everybody knows that, that this is a great thing for her. And they join in the celebration. Um, and then the third story is uh, no, longer a sheet, no longer a thing. It's not an animal. It's not a coin. Um, we have now in the third story people who are lost and found or not found. And, um, this story is the capstone of the other two. It's really the same story, but retold now, kind of living flesh. Okay, and I gave you a little diagram of the three stories. I think, did they print that out for you? Yeah, just, just a very quick little diagram. Um, I don't have it here, handy. So anyway, that's just a little bit of background. Okay, so in the third story of the one parable, 
uh, of things lost and found. We have, um, I'm going to kind of retell the story after we read it as it actually was told by Jesus. I want to retell the story um, almost like a drama. So in three acts, in, in your little thing that they prepared for you, they, they have titles that I gave them earlier on, but I've changed them a little bit. So, um, uh, just, so this morning's talk will be Act 1. Um, later on, we'll, this morning we'll do Act 2, and then this afternoon, Act 3. Okay? Because it's so dramatic, it fits that kind of a structure. Okay? Good. So, open your Bibles, <laughs> please. <laughs> no. Then Jesus said, A man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estates which should come to me. So the father divided the property between them. After a few days, the younger son collected all his belongings and set off to a distant country, where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. When he had freely spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out to one of the local citizens who sent him off to his farm to tend to the swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough to eat, but here I am dying from hunger. I shall get up and go to my father, and I shall say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. So he got up and went back to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him, and he was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But his father ordered his servants, Quickly, bring the finest robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Take the fattened calf and slaughter it. Then let us celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And then the celebration began. Now the older son had been out in the field. And on his way back, as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, Your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And he became angry. And when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. He said to his father in reply, Look, all these years I served you, and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when your son returns who swallowed up your property with prostitutes, 
For him you slaughter the fattened calf. The father said to him, My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. You good Catholics. So a couple of things before I get into that story. It's one thing to read the story as people living in the 21st century in Spokane, Washington. Uh, In our culture, we have even unconscious suppositions and our culture tells us how things work. It's another thing to read the story um, as first century people living in the Middle East would have read or heard the story more likely. So what we want to do as much as possible is go back into their mindset and hear the story as they would have heard it because that's what Jesus had in mind. And it's revelatory. Um, So for example, um, this story is read, um, as you know, um, Islam uh, has a great respect for Jesus and uh, see him as a great prophet. They do not see him as a savior and they use this story as a, as a, to make their case that Jesus himself did not see himself as a savior, um, that he's not divine, um, that, that, this is, that, that this story proves their point that Jesus is a great prophet but not because this young man makes his own decision to come home. He's saved by his own decision to come back to the father. The father doesn't really have to do and he doesn't have to send anybody out there to go get him. In actuality, reading the story in first century mindset, that's absolutely not the case. Um, The Islamic interpretation of this story, uh, as well as our general interpretations of it as 21st century Americans, is really pretty far off the mark. So this little book, um, I had the privilege of having a, a, a three month sabbatical in the Holy Land at a place called Tantur. And one of the people who lived there and worked there and taught there was Kenneth Bailey. And he's now dead. God blessed him. God rest his soul. He's a great scholar. And he spent his whole life um, living in the, in the Middle East, especially with the Christian communities, and visiting villages of um, um, Middle Eastern Christians primarily, but anybody. So, And he um, he really understood the mindset because it hasn't changed that much. And so he would take this story and the other stories and he would read them and share them with poor people in small villages and say, what do you hear? And it would be pretty universal all across that culture, what they would hear. And that gave him great insight. And he, he also, of course, studied lots of, lots of other stuff. And anyway, that's, that's the source of, I'm, I'm not making this up. I mean, I didn't create this myself. I'm completely dependent on Kenneth Bailey. <laughs> so, but anyway, so act one of the story. From the point of view of first Christian, first century um, um, people living in, the, in, in the, what we call now the Middle, Middle East. So um, I'm going to give... Act one, let's just call it um, two very bad sons and one kind of bad dad. Um, 
So let's talk a little bit about the younger son, since he kind of is the star of part one, act one. Um, I'm going to give him a name. Younger son, I'm just going to call Johnny, because I'm just taking names from Jesus' apostles, John, John and James, Johnny and Jimmy, just by John was the youngest. Um, Jesus liked him a lot. <laughs> so we'll call the young one Johnny. Just give him a name. So the younger son, Johnny, um, he goes to his father. We can imagine this. We have this experience. Uh, you get a young kid who thinks he's really cool, who thinks he's really dude, thinks he can manage his own life, doesn't need his parents anymore, and um, going to be independent. Um, and he goes to his father and says, I want my share of the property. You know, there's two brothers. I get a third. Um, the older brother actually gets two-thirds because he's the older brother. And uh, <coughs> he, he doesn't care about um, the responsibilities of taking his share of the inheritance, of his, his share of the family's goods, because he's not asking for, um, Father, I'd like to become um, you know, the the person who care, takes care of this material for you, of this stuff for you. He just wants it to run off and go dissipate it, you know? Go have a good time, party boy. Um, there's, there's really something really important here um, that we don't get generally as 21st century people, is this is a terrible, terrible thing he is doing to his father and to his brother and to his extended family. So in these times, people would live together with their extended family. They would live on a whole street. Um, houses would be built right next to each other. It would be all, everybody would be cousins. And they would hold a lot of the property in common. It's a tribal culture. And individualism doesn't exist. Everything belongs to everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. Um, everybody on the block down the street is an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or something. And um, so by going to his father and saying, I want my share of the stuff, he's asking for, um, he's asking for something which is going to affect everybody because he's taking property that everybody depends on. So if he gets a third of the sheep or a third of the goats, that's you know, 33 goats out of 100, that the general community can no longer access and use. All of a sudden, there's less milk, there's less meat, there's less wool for everyone else. So it's a very, very selfish thing he's doing. Um, secondly, about this request, is if he were to asking for his inheritance uh, in a sort of righteous way, he would, he would be taking responsibility then to care for that. He would be saying, Father, I'm old enough now. I would like to be the uh, person who takes care of this for the good of all. I accept the responsibility of managing well this, these, this material wealth which has come down to us from generation to generation and I will pass it on to the next generation. So I will be a good economo, is the, be the Latin word. I'll be a good a manager, um, steward of 
our family's riches and inheritance on your behalf. But he doesn't do that. He does not accept any responsibility for managing this property well. To the contrary, he just wants his stuff. And he wants it now. Um, the word that is used in the Greek for the, for the stuff is not the word inheritance that comes up a little later. It's the word for just property. He just wants the goods. And that's all he wants. And he doesn't want to get, exercise any responsibility. The third thing he's doing is he is saying to his father, this would only happen normally in these cultures. A son would only ask for his share if the father's on the verge of dying. You would never, ever go to your father while he's still healthy and young and say, I want my share of the inheritance. What the son is saying to him is, you are dead to me. I no longer want any relationship to you. I want my stuff. I don't want you. You are as good as dead to me. It's a terrible insult to speak to your father that way in this culture. You would never tolerate that. You would, it's, it's inconceivable when Kenneth Bailey asked people, have you ever heard of someone doing this? In all of these different villages, they would say, no. It's impossible. No son would ever speak to his father that way. No son would ever make this request of his father. And no father would, in a million years, no father would ever accede to such a request. He would take that boy out back and spank him and say, get back to work. So, he is cutting in a fundamental way all relationship, all filial relationship, all relationship to his father with this request. You are as good as dead to me. And there is no worse insult in all of their culture than for a son to say something like that to his dad. It's impossible. So he completely, foundationally, fundamentally is breaking his relationship with his father. He is no longer my father. I am no longer your son. In a culture that is tribal and familial, that's what he's doing is he's saying, I'm off. I'm going to become an individualist now. I'm going to follow the American way. And at 18 years, I'm going to leave home. And maybe I'll come back to visit. Maybe I won't. Um, and that's in the tribal culture, that's a, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible rending of the family. And it affects everybody in the community. Um, and he deliberately chooses to now become a rootless, familyless, fatherless, brotherless vagabond. He no longer, with this decision, he no longer has any relationship to this community, and they no longer have any responsibility or obligation to him. In this culture, hospitality is extremely valuable. And if someone comes back, you don't even know them, but they say, my father's, my father's father's father used to be part of this town. You know, I'm related to so-and-so. He was my great-grandfather. Ah, come on in, have dinner. Have a cup of coffee or tea. Do you need a bed? Let us feed you. Let us, you know, how long can you stay? You're ours. You're one of us. 
And this boy, Johnny, says, I don't care. I never want to come back here. I'll never come back here. I'm going to be a vagabond, rootless, familyless. He gives up any, any relationship with the communities uh, and their responsibility to be hospitable to him. It's a complete and total cut. Does that make sense? Okay. Then what does the son do? So everybody knows about this immediately, because small towns, that's the way they work. Um, everybody knows about this. So he's got his stuff. The father is seeds. We'll talk about the father more further on. And he's got, in two days, he sells it all. He's not going to take sheep and goats <laughs> um, with him. So if he's going to sell it, 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 this is a barter culture. So you take time to work out deals. If I'm going to sell you 30 sheep, you know, we're going to work out the price. And it's going to take days and weeks and maybe months for us to work out this. And, and you know, um, uh, there's bartering and going on and with the value. And this, I'll trade you this for that. He does it in two days. So he's selling this stuff at cut rate. He wants the money and he wants it fast. It's like going to a loan shark, you know? It's like, I'll, I, just give me the money. Okay, I'll sell it to you, whatever you want to give it for me. Which is, again, a terrible waste of his family's fortune. Um, but then what does he do? He takes the money after selling the property. He takes the money and everybody knows that um, what he's doing and everybody hates him because of what he's done to his father and to them and to their resources. So he's got to get out of Dodge as quick as possible. He can't hang around. They string him up. Um, so he goes off to a pagan land, a faraway land, with his wealth. The Greek says, um, not that, that he walked away from his people. His leaving, he walked away from his people, he walked away from his family, walked away from his roots, his heritage, his identity. Um, I had the privilege of working 30 years ago in a little village in Guatemala, Ixtuacan, um, which was still at that time a very tribal culture. And in, until you've been in a world like that and lived inside a tribal world where your group identity, your family identity, your town identity is far more important than your individual identity. Um, you can't understand how deep this cut is, this breach. Um, okay. So um, he begins, gets to this faraway land, leaves his people behind. He's got all this money. He needs to make new friends. What is he going to do? He's going to throw parties. What do young people do? Pullman, they throw parties. <laughs> and um, so he's throwing parties. He wants to, you know, he's throwing his money around. Um, he's entertaining people. He wants to make friends by having these big parties. And stuff goes on. Um, and he knows that he can never go back home again. He's cut all relationships. And uh, he travels away from his people. Um, he tries to make kind of a new family by buying people's friendship. Um, and uh, as the image from the Middle East goes, um, he's planted his palm tree in concrete, you know. He's, he's taking fruit from a tree he's not watering. It's dying. 
pretty soon he runs out of money. And then the famine hits. So he's wasted his money, he's cut off his relationship to his family and his community, and now on top of that, disaster strikes with famine, and he's dying of hunger. We know what famine is like only because we read about it in the newspaper or see it on CNN right now in South Sudan. You, know, you see the heart-wrenching pictures of children, of parents, of adults. Um, it was even worse then because a famine meant, I mean, there was no, they didn't have UN or Red Cross or CRS. When a famine hit, it would be so bad that people would finally, when, when there was nothing left, would build, them, build a wall inside their house so that when they died, the dogs and the other animals wouldn't come and eat them. Um, that's how desperate they would get. And that's where he's at. He's dying of hunger. We don't even know what hunger is anymore in our culture. Um, real hunger, we don't know what it's like. Um, so, um, Anyway, he's, um, he's really, really in a bad way. And he knows he can't go home again. If he were to go home, if he were to go home, then his, his people, as he approached, knowing as soon as they find out that he's wasted their money, and even worse, wasted it in a pagan land, he's dissipated all these resources among pagans. They would perform a ceremony of exercising him from the community called Kazeza. And they would prepare this and um, they would get this big pot made out of clay and they'd place it at his feet and they'd smash it. And you are no longer part this community go. You can live somewhere else, but you can't live here. Um, devastating, the strongest possible image they could come up with for cutting him off when he come back. So he can't go back. He doesn't feel. Okay. Um, so you got the picture of Johnny? Okay. Um, so let's talk about the other son, the older son, Jimmy. Um, he is not a good son either. Um, as the eldest son, he has the responsibility, as soon as he becomes aware that there is a fight, a division, a breach in the family between his brother and his father, it's his responsibility as the oldest son, the older son, to play the role of the mediator. So the father would never, in this culture, the father would never go to his son who's walking away and say, oh, you know, you must come back. Do the negotiating himself because that would lose faith. He would lose face. Can't lose face. He still has to be the father. He's the leader of the community. So the son would do, the elder son would do the negotiating. And he would be like Jimmy Carter with Rabin and uh, Begin, you know, at Camp David. He would be going back and forth between the two. He'd be negotiating a settlement. 
a peace treaty between the two so that the, the two could live together in peace again. That's his responsibility. It's his solemn responsibility. He doesn't do it. He doesn't love his brother. And in fact, he doesn't love his father because he rejects this responsibility. He's also cut off from his own family, even though he's pretending to be the good son. You know? Um, he rejects his father just as gravely as his little brother did. Um, then there's the father himself, Pop. Okay. So he's not a good father either. Because insofar as he accedes to the request of Johnny and didn't take him out to spank him behind the woodshed, um, this is inexplicable. This is not what a good father does, letting the boy off, letting him go with the money. He would never do that. A father in this culture would never let the son do this to him. He would never be so dishonored. He would never allow this to happen. He would know, he, would, he just would not let this go forward. Um, even if he had to put the boy in jail or, or lock him up in his bedroom or do something, he would never let this happen. So a person in the first century hearing this story going, what kind of dad is this? He's not a dad. He's not a father. Fathers don't act this way. Okay. Um, and nor does he insist that the older brother, Jimmy, should do the mediating. He doesn't say, Jimmy, okay, come on, this is your job, you've got to fix this for us. He lets him off as well. Anybody hearing this story would say, bad dad, really bad dad, because he's not exercising his paternal authority over his sons. He's just letting them go off. Sometimes we say that about our cousins, you know, or something, you know, or people are like, oh, they're such, they're so spoiled, and they're so, the parents don't do any disciplining, blah, 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 you know. All they're, they're just helicopter moms and dads now, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But the, the pop's badness is of a very different kind than the two sons. So he's a bad dad because he doesn't fulfill his archetypal role as a father in the community. But he's bad dad because he loves his sons so much that he lets them make these terrible decisions. Jesus is giving us here the image he has that he wants us to have of God. He lets his sons and daughters, because of his love for them, make terrible decisions. And even with all the consequences that come with that. Um, he accepts the dishonor and the shame that comes from being a bad dad in his culture. And the humiliation. Everybody in town is talking about Pops. What a terrible dad he is. What a shame, shameful exercise of authority the bad example that he's given in letting these sons treat him that way. He accepts all that um, in letting 
this kid and the other kid do what they want to do. Um, this is a very weird image of God in the first century. Um, people would be scratching their heads saying, what is Jesus talking about? How can that be God? They're not saying that quite yet in the story, but eventually as they reflect on it, they would get it. Okay. But he's a poor father because out of love, he lets his children have their way. Sound familiar? <laughs> okay. So that's act one. Um, and we have a little bit of time for our own reflection. I've given you a little sheet with some guided reflection questions. If you want to use them in your quiet time, feel, feel free to do so. If they're not helpful to you, ignore them. But they might be, who knows, they're just sort of things that um, might be a little bit helpful to you um, in Act One. Does that make sense so far? Okay. You get the feeling of how radical this story is and how Jesus is spinning something here which people really, really, really have to digest. And remember, he's telling this story standing in front of the Pharisees who are saying to him, how dare you eat with sinners? How, how, what kind of Messiah are you? What kind of Jew are you that you would eat with tax collectors? Okay. So we have now, it's the schedule we have till um, 10, oh, 10.15. Yikes. So you've got about 25 minutes for some quiet time. Okay. Thank you. <coughs>